Tonight, straight from the source, the FBI shoots and kills a man in an early morning raid after he allegedly made online threats to kill President Biden. His disturbing social media post on more on why and how this happened. Plus, New York City Mayor Eric Adams pleading for help from President Biden as the migrant crisis in this New York City gets worse. Federal officials are in the city tonight and Mayor Adams is here live. And paradise is burning. Hawaii is in flames as deadly wildfires are creating apocalyptic scenes in one of the biggest tourist destinations in the world. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. A presidential scare tonight as President Biden is spending the night in Salt Lake City during his first trip to Utah since taking office. But just hours before he arrived, the FBI shot and killed a suspect while they were carrying out a search warrant against a man allegedly making death threats against the president and other high-profile Democrats. It happened while they were trying to arrest him this morning. A source tells CNN that SWAT agents were giving commands to the suspect, Craig Robertson, when he pointed a gun at them. President Biden was briefed by his senior staff on the incident before he touched down in Utah. And we should note that some of these threats from the suspect here were posted only days ago, including this one that was shown in the criminal complaint. He said, quote, I hear Biden is coming to Utah, digging out my old ghillie suit and cleaning off the dust from my M24 rifle. An agent on the case said in the complaint that the suspect did actually own that sniper rifle and the camouflage suit. And these pictures were posted along with it. A witness to the raid described what she heard early this morning. Little before six, there was a big boom. And then there was another one and another one and another one. But they called for my neighbor to come out. And he's like, I'm not coming out, mother effer. And then um, I didn't hear anything after that. Robertson posted pictures of numerous weapons online and also issued threats to Trump prosecutors, people who are prosecuting the former president, I should say, including New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg. I'm joined now tonight by the mayor of New York City, Mayor Eric Adams. Mayor Adams, thank you for being here. Obviously, we we wanted you to come on to talk about immigration and what's happening in the city. We will get to that in just a moment. But, I mean, on this disturbing story about what we learned today, this this raid that was being carried out, This man not only threatened President Biden, allegedly, but also Vice President Harris, the attorney general, the district attorney here in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg. I mean, do you feel like threats that public to public officials have gotten worse? And what do you think is driving that? I think it's a combination of overproliferation of guns in our country, the, you know, real mental health illnesses that we are seeing and it's just social media. Uh, I've been stating this over and over again. We had a summit here in New York to see the impact of social media uh, on uh, our young people, but even adults. And, you know, those threats, the FBI, you have to really commend them for taking those threats seriously and carrying out a proper investigation. Yeah. Are you more nervous, I mean, to be a publicly elected official today? Well, you, you're always concerned. You know, I have a, a great uh, detail. NYPD uh, they know their job very well. We allow them to handle it and listen to what they say to do and what not to do. And we will continue to uh, look, at, look at the instructions that are coming from our intel division when we get those threats and they assess them well. 
and make sure that things are done uh, properly. Yeah. New York City is dealing with an unprecedented influx of tens of thousands of people who are seeking uh, asylum. You say, and you said today, you believe it's going to cost about $12 billion and to care for them over the next three years. And you said you need federal help. Do you think that you're that you're going to get it? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, I believe that we have a DHS team uh, that's on the ground here now. And there's something that our team, my uh, deputy mayors and deputy mayor that's in charge of uh, this initiative. Uh, we have been walking through business leaders, walking through congressional delegation to see exactly what's taking place. We were successful to keep this from spilling over onto our streets for over a year. And what you saw in front of the Roosevelt Hotel was really uh, that it was just overwhelmed and the dam finally burst. Well, and what you're referencing for, for people who don't know is just recently, I mean, the system clearly broke down. 200 migrants were sleeping outside on the sidewalk of the Roosevelt Hotel just around the, the corner from Grand Central Station. I mean, who was responsible for, for that image, for seeing those pictures of people sleeping out on the sidewalks? Well, I'm the mayor of the city of New York. I take responsibilities for anything that happens in this city. It is my obligation to make sure that New Yorkers are safe. Uh, we received an overwhelming number of individuals. We already reached the maximum of how many people we could house. And for that period of time, we could not place people in the Roosevelt Hotel because we still have to abide by the restrictions for occupancy, for safety. And we were able to find them temporary shelter in another location. But we cannot uh, state that this can't happen, won't happen again. We received you over can't say that it won't happen no, again? No, we cannot. We received over 90,000 people in our city and I've been stating for some time that we need relief. We need a help. This is a national crisis, and it should be handled by national resources and national policies. So what do you say to White House officials who they see your calls for, for federal help? Yes, there's a DHS team here. They're going to report back to Secretary Marcus. But the White House says, you know, New York has already gotten $140 million from the federal government. That's more than, than any other city that's not a border, a border city. Uh, what do you say to them when they say you know, you're getting more help than, than other places are? Well, I think you started off the broadcast. Uh, the numbers are $12 billion over three years. $12 billion over three years. We already spent over a billion dollars already. And to state uh, that a $100 million could address a national $12 billion uh, problem, we're saying we need more. And then we need others. We need a real decompression strategy, strategy at the border. Uh, we need to allow these uh, migrants asylum seekers to do that I believe is the most American thing to do. And that is to work. What is more anti-American than not being able to work? And has the White House responded to you when you say what you want is essentially them to be able to speed up the work requirements, the work permits for, for them to be able to begin working, which are already shorter than they are in other periods? Has the White House said anything to you on any of that? Well, when you say shorter in, in other periods, there's such a backlog of cases that the spirited energy that within six months people would be able to get a job, that's not a reality. Um, some of the migrant asylum seekers will probably have to wait anywhere from a year to a year and a half. That's a long time for New Yorkers to have to carry this burden. And that is part of the ongoing conversations we're having with the White House right now. That's the hope that we're having with DHS team here and my congressional delegation and other elected officials across the uh, country. I take my hat off to the governor of Massachusetts, who's also stating the same thing. There must be a real strategy to deal with this crisis. You're asking the federal government to declare a state of emergency. So far, they have not done so. 
What is your relationship with President Biden at this moment? Well, I think that uh, I have a great relationship with the president. I have a great relationship with my colleagues across the entire country. And we have to separate a disagreement on a topic with do we have a relationship? There's, there is uh, many issues that we're facing, not only in this city, but in this country. And if there's a place that I disagree, I'm going to be honest about it. Yeah, we've uh, certainly seen that. But, I mean, have you spoken to him about these specific asks that you have? Yes, we have. We had, uh, when was the last time we, you guys talked? Uh, last year when he was here. Um, I spoke with White House st- staffs and White House teams on this. And we sent the letters for the ma- three of the majors, mayors from the largest city, Houston, uh, and uh Los Angeles, we sent a letter to sit down and we want to speak with the president on this. But you haven't spoken to system. him in 2023? No, I have not. But I spoke with um, with authorities and our team has been communicating with the White House as well. Do you support his re-election bid? Yes, I did. I made that clear before. Uh, I believe he's moving the country in the right direction and we need to continue to move in the right direction. And I can separate what I believe an issue that we disagree on how we are addressing it with what I believe overall is needed for this country. My number one obligation is to the people of the city of New York. Speaking of campaigns, in early July, the Manhattan Manhattan District Attorney indicted six people, including a former New York Police Department officer, in this straw donor scheme that sent donations to your campaign for mayor in 2021. Neither you nor anyone in your campaign has been accused of any wrongdoing, I should note. But were you were you aware of any of that? Or what's your response to those charges? No, not aware at all. And, you know, I follow one rule, follow the rules. Uh, and uh, the district attorney is conducting his investigation. He did so. And it was clear that uh, our campaign had uh, no uh, participation in that. And it's just an unfortunate situation. But uh, I have a lot of faith in the DA's office, DA Braggs. He's going to follow this to, to conclusion. So you're not worried that anyone from your team would ever uh, be ensnared in that or have legal exposure on that? Well, I think they did a thorough investigation and they laid out in the indictment and everything that was connected to it exactly what happened. And that thorough investigation made a determination that our team had nothing to do with it. Okay, it's been a really challenging summer here in New York. I mean, not only what's happening with migrants, of course, the situation at the Rikers Jail has gotten so bad that the federal authorities are considering taking over it. I know you disagree with that and don't believe um, that that's necessary. There's also a law enforcement investigation into a former member uh, of your administration. When you look at the big picture of all of the problems that New York City is facing, do you feel that that you and your administration can adequately handle those issues? You tell me when was the time you didn't have a lot going on in New York. That's true. In, in, New, York, <laughs> in New York City. All your predecessors will say, yeah, we had a lot on our plate as no, well. But, but you but, are dealing with a lot from this summer, just and the I last want it. few months. I want it. You know, winners want the ball when the game is on the line. They don't pass the ball. They want the last shot, the last at bat. They want to kick the field goal. Let's look at the reality. 99% of the jobs we lost are back pre-pandemic. Decreasing crime, decreasing shootings, decreasing homicides. We're seeing our tourism is is up. Uh, we have a double A bond rating in the city of New York. Uh, this is the place to be right now. I didn't run for mayor uh, to worry about woe is me. I said I want to be mayor. Why not me? Is it more challenging than you thought it would be? Uh, not at all. Uh, you get up really? every day. You do the best you can. You give it your all. New Yorkers know one thing about me. I'm up before everyone else, and I'm going to go to bed after everyone else to make sure the city is operating right. This is the right time for me to be the mayor. With my experience in law enforcement, state senator, borough president, and not only that, I'm a mayor that has gone through a lot, and now I can help people who are going through a lot. Yeah. I want to be the mayor of the city of New York. Well, you certainly have a lot on your plate. I do have to ask you about this 
bizarre report that was in the New York Times uh, recently about a photo that you carry in your wallet and that you have spoken very publicly uh, about. It is of Officer Robert Venable, who was killed in the line of duty in 1987. and, And you pulled it out after two other officers had been killed, talking about how meaningful it was. But the New York Times did a report essentially saying that that photo had been recreated, that it had not actually been carried in your wallet for decades, that it was created by staff in your office. Your office, I should note, denied the story and said it had been in your wallet for decades. Can you just clear that up? What happened I have the, with that? I have the original newsletter that was produced by the department of the original. The original. So why would I have to reproduce something that I had the original for? The family knew me. Robert was a dear friend. There was a lot of anger attached to that story that I allowed a lot of discipline, not to get emotionally tied. It was wrong to do that. But there's not much I can do about that. I can't control what people want to write. No one was instructed by me to do anything with an original photo that I had, that I carried, of my friend. This was a dear friend of mine, and that was a very painful moment to have it not only recreated, but to state I would do something like that to someone that I was that close to. So you're saying just, you know, they said that the picture was found on Google, that it was printed in black and white and made to look worn, uh, that someone splashed coffee on it. You're saying none of that's true. I stated, I have the original. The one that's on Google that they're talking about, I have the original. I don't know how clear I can be. And the family was also saying, we know Eric Adams. Eric has been with our family and was wrong to do. Yeah, his daughter, January, came out and spoke about that after. And his other relatives as well. Mayor Eric Adams, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for answering our questions. And of course, if you do hear from President Biden on what is the biggest issue that you're facing right now, please let us know. Will do. Thank you so much for joining us in studio tonight. Ahead, much more on what we were just talking about there at the beginning. The FBI raid, where a man allegedly threatening the president shot and killed in the early hours in Utah this morning. And wildfires are burning out of control in Hawaii. At least six people have been killed. The National Guard has been deployed. Thousands of people are evacuating. We'll speak to someone still on the ground tonight. Tonight, we're learning chilling new details about a deadly confrontation between a man accused of threatening to assassinate President Biden and FBI agents who showed up at his Utah home before dawn. Law enforcement officials say that Craig Robertson was armed to the teeth and facing federal charges for threats not only against the president, but also several other prominent Democrats, the FBI, prosecutors who have brought cases against former President Trump. All of this happened this morning. And the big questions now, what happened when agents moved in to arrest the suspect? And how do the feds tell the difference between bluster and what is a deadly serious terror threat? Let's get some answers from CNN senior crime and justice correspondent Shimon Prokupes and CNN national security analyst Juliet Kayam. Thank you both for being here. Shimon, I mean, these kinds, the FBI killing someone is incredibly rare. Walk us through what happened this morning. Yeah, it's incredibly rare. They prepare for this, and it's very clear they did prepare, uh, prepare for this really heavily because they were expecting perhaps to meet some kind of resistance. So this really all begins several months ago, but it heats up on Monday when this individual, Craig Robertson, tweets, or not tweets, I should say, he posts on Facebook that the president is coming to Utah and that it's time for him to take action and talks about 
his, uh, his weapon, talks about what he's going to wear. And so what happens is the FBI says, okay, we need to go in. We need to take him down. This is a threat. The president is coming here. He's talking about killing the president. So they go into really full action. They d- devise a plan. They go in. They put this plan together. And then early this morning, you know, while they're suiting up, putting on all of their gear, getting ready to go after him, the president is planning his trip to Utah. They go in. It's dark out early in the morning, 6 a.m., essentially to take him off the street. And then there's a confrontation with the FBI. They come to the house. They have a conversation with him. Something happens. I'm told he pulled out a handgun, and that's when the FBI shot and killed him. And this all happened, you know, know, he had been making threats not just against President Biden, but several other officials here as well. He referred to one of his guns, I read this in the complaint, as a Democrat eradicator. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even just this post-recent days. He's been making these for months. For months. And so... The FBI gets alerted to him back in March because he's posting messages about killing Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA who's prosecuting Donald Trump. And clearly, um, he is a Trump supporter. The FBI knows this. They go to his house. They talk to him, basically saying, we're on to you. What are you doing? What's going on? And they want to make sure he's not coming to New York to take action. He doesn't come here. There's no evidence that he ever comes here. But they were so worried. They went there. And then what he does is he continues to post Facebook messages threatening the FBI agents who came to him, threatening others, continuing to threaten the president. He also, you know, made threats uh, towards the vice president, Mm -hmm. the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, the attorney general. So, you know, this has been going on for months and months and months. But what changes everything is that he makes this post about killing the president while he's in Utah. So that changed everything. Just hours before Biden was going uh, to be briefed there, or to arrive there. And Juliet, you know, as we're talking about how this is happening, the President Biden is set to arrive there. You know, this is the post that Shimon was referencing. I just want to show it because he said, I hear Biden is coming to Utah, digging my old ghillie suit and cleaning the dust off my M24 sniper rifle. I guess my question is, people say crazy things online all the time. What is the threshold right. for when the FBI does go and conduct a raid as they were planning to to do this morning? Well, first, they will probably learn more of some of this investigation. It may not, it may, uh, some stuff that's in the affidavit may not actually be everything that they know. What we know at this stage is that what he was saying was scary enough for a social media platform. We don't know if it was Facebook, but Facebook's mentioned a lot. He also used True Social a lot. Notifies the National uh, Terrorism Operations Center, the NTOC. This is an FBI entity that is being fed a lot of this stuff that's, you know, getting online and trying to make a determination between what's just hate, what's just people, you know, blowing off steam and what is real. And and basically they're going to focus on methods, means and motive. And in this case, he had all three. He was blessed. I mean, he was he was sort of being performative um, online. He's 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 uh, directing statements to the FBI. I know you're watching. I know mm-hmm. Biden's here. He has the motives. He has the means. And they also know uh, he is highly uh, armed and those three things would then trigger uh, something much more than you know someone just posting online that they don't like Biden or they don't like the vice president. Yeah, I mean they had they'd been there in March. He saw them. He told them don't yeah. come back without a warrant. But I think what's hard to ignore here is the backdrop of the climate that we're living in, which is this heightened exactly. political polarization. I mean Trump obviously has been indicted three times. He rails against the people. Uh, who are handling those indictments every single day uh, almost. I mean, what's the correlation in in what this looks like now and if there's an uptick in violence and violent threats like this? 
Well, absolutely. Chris Ray, the FBI director, has said so, uh, has said that he's never seen a threat environment like this heading into the election, especially targeted against uh, people running uh, and targeted against Democrats in particular when we see the online chatter, uh, even though there are attacks against Republicans. And it's just we're looking at quantity at this stage. And so people think about incitement like, you know, uh, uh, the former President Trump might say something and um, and people go off and do stuff. It's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I, I, what I, how I describe what Trump is doing in some of his language and some of the language we're hearing from other candidates now is that they're creating a permissive structure. They're creating permission uh, to utilize violence as an extension of just our political debates. They're normalizing it. Uh, they're they're winking at it. They're nodding at it. They're 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 essentially you know serving as a magnet for it. And that's why it has to be condemned from the top, from the leadership uh, within the GOP as well. Uh, and uh, essentially make the price of this conduct uh, sufficiently high that uh, people will not do it. So it's 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 arrests, the arrests that we're seeing, it's the investigations, uh, and it's the deplatforming of particular individuals. All of those things make the price high for people who are going to uh, legitimize violence, uh, not ta- not thoughts, not words, violence uh, as a means to um, uh, as as part of our democratic process. So we have to get rid of that permissive structure, and that comes uh, and that's coming from. Uh, someone who is likely to be the 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 the, can, the nominee in in the uh, uh, for the GOP. Juliet Kayam, Shimon Prokupes, thank you both. Horrific apocalyptic scenes, and it's one of the most beautiful places of the world. But rescue teams are now resi- racing to save lives there from raging wildfires in Maui. Several people have been confirmed dead. We are live on the ground with the very latest next. Wildfires are still ravaging Hawaii tonight, and at least six people are dead. Thousands have been evacuated, and many more homes have been destroyed. One pilot who flew over the island of Maui said it looked like an area that had been bombed in a war. These are strong winds that are connected to Hurricane Dora that helped fuel those flames. And you can see here, I mean, drivers were stranded on highways as these large, dark clouds of smoke covered their path to safety. This is a place that is supposed to look like paradise. It typically does. But instead, we have now learned that the Coast Guard had to rescue people who jumped into the ocean to escape the flames. CNN's correspondent Veronica Miracle is on the ground. Veronica, just tell us what you're seeing on the ground since you arrived there just a few hours ago. Of course, the situation is incredibly dire. Even as we were flying in, we could see some of the smoke from one of the three wildfires burning on the island of Maui. And you can see it actually, one of those three fires right behind me. We've seen it evolve over the last couple of hours. Usually this is a beautiful mountainscape that you can see, and it's all covered by smoke. But the real destruction and damage is about 30 minutes from here over in Lahaina. That's where the front street has been damaged and destroyed. Thousands of people are stranded without power, without water, without resources. There was one road in and one road out. And that road right now is blocked for only emergency vehicles, which we have heard sirens throughout the afternoon, and only people who are bringing in supplies. Now, I'm standing at a marina because, of course, the other way that you can get there is by sea, which the sea, as you can see, is incredibly choppy. It is very windy right now. But there have been 
Many expedition boats that normally take people to go out whale washing, they have been loading their boats up with supplies from volunteers who have just showed up at this marina, as well as distributors, local businesses who are bringing pallets of water, dog food, mattresses, anything that people over on the other side of the island might need. They've been loading up the boats, and those boats have been going all the way around. Now, they can't land and dock, I'm told by one of the captains, they can't dock at the area that is uh, in directly impacted um, for a number of reasons, including all of the damage and destruction. Uh, but I am told that they're going all the way around to other docks or they're meeting up with sailboats, smaller boats, passing on those supplies and also trying to pick people up and bring them out to safety. All right, Veronica Miracle in Maui, stay safe. We will check back in with you. Uh, thank you for being there. Joining me now is Daniel Sullivan, who lives on Maui and has been experiencing uh, essentially hell over the last 24 hours. Daniel, I can't even imagine what the past day has been like. Can you just, I know you've got your kids there, your family's there, your pets are there. Can you just kind of walk me through what the last 24 hours have been like for you and for your family? Yeah, it's been a, a sleepless 24 hours. Uh, I mean, it started with the winds from Dora and all the trees were knocked down around our neighborhood. So the first thing we dealt with were the roads being blocked and the winds were crazy. I mean, just a lot stronger than we thought. And then the fire started um, about midday and started spreading really fast. Uh, we started with a fire kind of from our east of our house. And then we had one coming in from behind the house. And then there was one underneath the house. So by nightfall, the electricity had gone out. We had no idea what was going on. We just knew that the entire island was engulfed in flames. We just saw fire as far as you could see. And um, I just went up on my roof and I you know, watched as the flames got closer and closer. And we had no way to get out because the roads were blocked. The fire was blocking anything that didn't have a tree falling on it. And the shelters that people had gone to were having to be evacuated because the fires were taking over the shelters. It was it was apocalyptic. We've never seen anything like it. And so you didn't sleep at all last night? I haven't slept. No, no. I, I was on my roof all night just waiting for the go. My kids were downstairs sleeping, and I was just ready to go at any moment um, if the flames got too close. Well, and what's your concern about... I mean, what's your backup plan? I mean, there's major transportation issues. The lieutenant governor has even said that. You just talked about all the roads being blocked. I mean, what is a family like yours supposed to do in a situation like that when, when it's difficult to call 911, it's difficult to leave your home, you're obviously staying up all night to see if you can see a fire? I mean, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Yeah, there's nothing you can do. You know, the water was off. Um, we were in a... Yeah, I did not... When... The wind started, we didn't see this happening. It was kind of a perfect storm because it was the drought that we've been having for days. It was this hurricane winds. And then the, I think the downed electric lines really are what started it here. And it just ignited the entire island. And I mean, as you've seen in footage, Front Street burned completely. You know, those were 200-year-old buildings all made out of wood. Blocks and blocks of restaurants and stores all gone. Um, I have many friends who've lost their homes. Um, the island's been decimated. We, mm. We've never seen anything like this. I mean, I know, and you said you, you've lived there 20 years. Daniel Sullivan, we are thinking of you and your friends, of course, who have also lost their homes. Please stay safe. Thank you for joining us, though, tonight to, to talk to us about what this has been like. Thank you. I appreciate it. Also here, the special counsel has now gotten access to one of Donald Trump's really most prized possessions, his Twitter account. 
Did Jack Smith find evidence of a crime? Why did he want access to Trump's Twitter? We'll talk about it next. Tonight, a newly unsealed court filing reveals that the special counsel Jack Smith got a search warrant to access former President Trump's Twitter account this past January. Prosecutors sought to keep that warrant secret from Trump, and a D.C. court ruled in their favor, saying, quote, there were reasonable grounds to believe that disclosing the warrant to former President Trump would seriously jeopardize the ongoing investigation by giving him an opportunity to destroy evidence. Twitter, which I should note is now known as X, had initially resisted that warrant. The company was actually fined $350,000 for the delay, and they were forced to turn over records, which they eventually did in February. Let's talk about all this with cybersecurity expert Alex Stamos, who is also Facebook's chief security officer. Alex, thank you for being here. I mean, obviously, Trump's tweets are publicly available information. You can go and look at them. But what would a search warrant get the special counsel that the public does not have access to? So there's a boring explanation, and then there's a couple more exciting possibilities. What about the exciting ones? Uh, so the boring, okay, so well, the, the boring explanation is it is not uncommon for prosecutors around the country to send search warrants to social media companies for public content just so they can have a good, strong chain of custody that they can prove in court this was something that was said. As you've pointed out, the things uh, President Trump tweeted on January 6th have been widely reported on in the media, have been screenshotted and such. But what the prosecutor is going to want is the ability to pull up a witness from Twitter who could say definitively, these tweets came from this device at this exact time. And that includes the three that were deleted. So one of the key things that have happened here is that when President Trump's account was reinstated by Mr. Musk after his takeover of Twitter, the, uh, the tweets that were most inflammatory on January 6th did not exist. And so I think part of it might be also going into Twitter's database to get evidence of those tweets and to prove that it was President Trump himself that sent it. I think that's another complication about this account is it's pretty widely believed that over time, many different people have had access to the real Donald Trump account because you'll see the things that are obviously written by President Trump and the things that seem to be written by aides or campaign workers. Um, and so what they'll want is the data that only Twitter has that proves this tweet was written on this phone at this time, at this location, which would be strong evidence that it was President Trump himself that typed it out. Yeah. And of course, those tweets that immediately come to mind are will be wild on January 6th when he was tweeting, you know, that Pence didn't have uh, have the courage. But could this data also shed light on tweets that that maybe weren't sent, ones that were drafted and not actually sent or or I don't know if he if he ever direct messaged people on Twitter, but that's an option as well. Right. And those are things that the prosecutor's warrant could get under the Stored Communications Act. There could be drafts of tweets that he wrote and did not send. Um, things that he wrote and deleted right before or that are still kind of in his drafts folder. There's also the possibility of those direct messages. Um, Although it's pretty widely reported that President Trump didn't use DMs too often, so I, I don't see that as extremely likely. I expect this is mostly about being able to prove it was President Trump himself and not one of the many people who at some point had access to his account that sent those tweets that are of interest to the special counsel. Yeah. Until today, I mean, this was secret. Trump, I believe, found out about it, or his legal team at least found out about it over the summer. I mean, Twitter was fined $350,000 because they didn't comply with this immediately. They didn't meet the deadline because they were arguing basically that they should be able to, to inform Trump and his legal team about it because they believed not doing so 
violated the First Amendment. I mean, is that pretty standard for a company like Twitter to take that route? Yeah, so there's a couple of things going on here. First, there was the gag order that was attached to the warrant, which turns out to be a pretty common practice by prosecutors that they do not want the subjects of investigation to know they're under investigation. It has been a very controversial practice because what's happened over the years is the case law has developed that the only person who can really challenge a search warrant is the person who's targeted themselves, not the companies. But if the person who's the target doesn't know, then they can't go fight it. And so there is a long history here of tech companies fighting in court to say, we want to drop this gag order so that we can give this person a fair chance of fighting the search warrant. In fact, when I was at Facebook, that happened multiple times. I got involved in multiple cases where we made that argument in cases where we thought the gag order was not necessary. Um, the second thing that, that that's going on is, you know, kind of the, the overall idea here um, is that the Special counsel wants to be able to maintain the integrity of this data, possibly also including the integrity of data on President Trump's phone. And I think that's one of the interesting questions that hasn't been asked is, does this indicate a broader search of devices? Are there other search warrants that we don't know about yet that would go with this? That would be a normal part of a prosecution for this kind of electronic evidence is you would not just be looking in the cloud, but you'd be looking at the devices because they will have other pieces of data that aren't available to Twitter. As as for the fine, um, Twitter did fight this, but they also just had mess ups. If you look at the appellate record from which this, this search warrant came out, it's the first time uh, that they tried to upload the warrant to ask Twitter, uh, Twitter's uh, law enforcement portal just broke. And so there's partially the story here is just that through all of these layoffs and these firings and the getting rid of of skilled, talented people at Twitter, Mr. Musk has broken basic functionality, such as having the ability to to cert, uh, handle search warrants. There's like so many different threads in this entire thing that it's kind of amazing. Alex Stamos, though, thank you for, for joining to break it all down. Thanks, Caitlin. Meanwhile, voters dropping the hammer on the GOP saying don't mess with abortion rights or their political power. That was a message we talked about last night. It was sent loud and clear in Ohio. But next, we'll turn to the governor of the next state that could be at the front of this fight. America's newest battleground state, Arizona. Katie Hobbs will join us. Abortion rights groups are setting their sights on a new battleground state after a big victory last night in Ohio. By a 14-point margin, vote margin, voters there rejected a change to the state's constitution that was part of an effort to stop an abortion rights amendment that is going to be on the ballot come November. They essentially wanted to raise the threshold, and they voted against that last night. Arizona is now among nine states where groups are also looking to expand abortion access through ballot initiatives next year. A coalition of abortion rights groups in Arizona just released a proposal, a proposal that would enshrine protections in their state's constitution. The first step is making sure they get enough signatures to be on the ballot, actually, in 2024. Arizona's Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs, joins me now. Governor, thank you so much for being here. I mean, last night we were watching, we called that as we were coming on the air in this show. Ohio is now the fourth red state, along with Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana, to to have essentially voted on the abortion rights side of a measure. All of this, of course, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. Do you think your state will be next? Absolutely. Um, Arizonans are energized over this issue, just as we've seen across the country. And um, they're energized to get this measure to the ballot and then have a chance to have their say on it in November. And I'm confident that they will uh, vote for the constitutional right to an abortion. 
Of course, we've seen that happen in several states. It's mobilizing voters in a way that that certainly Republicans were not expecting. But I think the question is, if this does get on the ballot in Arizona, do you think it could mobilize Democrats in your state who, who maybe aren't as enthusiastic about voting for President Biden, but would go to, to the polls to vote for this measure? Well, we certainly saw it play out that way in uh, the last election in 22. And that energy and momentum is continuing for sure. Um, we are under uncertain uh Uh, legal status when it comes to abortion. We're just one bad court decision away from a total ban that carries prison time for doctors. And um, the majority, the vast majority of Arizonans support um, the ability to make personal health care decisions free from the interference of government. Yeah, right now, Arizona bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The proposed language in this measure would guarantee the right to an abortion up until fetal viability, which is Uh, essentially 22 to 24 weeks of pregnancy. Do you personally back that timeline? Well, again, I think these are decisions best best left to healthcare professionals and their patients. And um, and I support people's ability to make their own personal healthcare decisions without the interference of politicians. But I think the question on the other side of this would be, is there any point in a pregnancy where, where you do believe that abortion should be restricted? Well, the language in this ballot measure uh, protects that right up to viability determined by healthcare professionals. And there is an exception further down the line when the life of the of the of the woman is at is at risk. And I certainly support that exception. But if you were if a bill was brought to your desk now that you are our our governor and there were uh, restrictions. And I mean, what what is the number of weeks that you would personally support that you would personally back? Well, I have, again, continued to say that I support the language in this measure um, that leaves that viability determination to healthcare professionals. Okay, but you do support the, okay, you, so you do support the language in the measure, which is uh, fetal viability, 22 to 24 weeks. One other thing, you know, the last time that you and I spoke was when you were running for governor, of course, you were running yeah. against Carrie Lake. There's reporting that she is preparing mm-hmm. to launch another run to represent Arizona. This would be for the Senate she still has not conceded to you, of course, in the other election that you won. What do you what do you make of her trying to represent your your state again? Well, I mean, I think it would it would mean that she would have to admit that she's not actually the governor if she were she, if she chose to launch a Senate bid. Um, I think Arizonans are tired of her continued um, election denialism and conspiracy theories, and that's something else that they'll get their chance to have their say on next November. And what did you make of the role that your state played in the broader scheme that we're seeing, the fake elector scheme, uh, when it comes to former President Trump and his indictment that came last week? Well, I was in the middle of a lot of that as the secretary of state. Mm -hmm. And I certainly, um, you know, uh, Arizona played a central role. And I was focused on my role in defending the will of the voters against these attacks And I'm certainly glad that we're starting to see some accountability for these bad actors who tried to overturn the will of the voters. Jack Smith reached out to the then governor of your state to speak to him. Did he ever reach out to you on anything? Uh, He he has not, no. Okay. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. And just in tonight, an opposition candidate in Ecuador's upcoming presidential race has been assassinated. We'll tell you what we do know next. 
Developing tonight, an opposition candidate in Ecuador's upcoming presidential election has been assassinated. Fernando Villa Vincencio was shot and killed at a political rally north of the capital. He had been under police protection, we are now learning. And this comes just 10 days before the first round of voting there. The president of Ecuador has confirmed the murder on social media, says the crime won't go unpunished, and we'll bring you updates as we get them. Also tonight, another update on a story that we brought you last week. An American nurse, Alex Dorsonville, and her daughter, who were kidnapped in Haiti, have now been released. The community organization that Alex works for celebrated their return in a statement Monday saying, quote, it is with a heart of gratitude and immense joy that we at Elroy Haiti confirm the safe release of our member, our staff member, and our friend Alex Dorsonville and her child who were held hostage in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Alex and her daughter were taken from the campus 13 days ago, and obviously everyone is thrilled that they are okay and safe tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. CNN Primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.